and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm Jonathan Maliberti. Don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, let's get to this one, one of my favorite episodes, Rolling Stone Part 4. When the Rolling Stones returned from their not-so-great U.S. tour in June of 1964, they went full steam ahead. It's All Over Now, a cover they had recorded in the U.S., went on to be their first number one single in the U.K., and presented them with a new level of fame and respect in the pop world. Between television recordings, radio gigs, and work in the studio, the band barely had enough time to go home to see their families before getting back on the road this time for their third and fourth British tours in the summer and fall of 1964. The back-to-back tours would have them playing over 70 shows all through Britain and parts of Europe. The Stones were playing constantly. Keith Richards described the workload at the time, saying, The work was always intensely hard. The gigs just never finished because you got off the stage. We had to go back to the hotel and start honing down these songs. We'd come off the road and we had four days to cut the tracks for an album, a week maximum. A track would get 30 to 40 minutes to get down. It wasn't that difficult because we were on the road, the band's well-oiled, and we've got 10, 15 songs. But it was non-stop, high-pressure work, which was probably good for us, unquote. The road took its toll on the personal lives of all the Stones, for people like Bill Wyman, Road work had a pretty harmful effect on his family life. His son and wife simply had to take a back seat to his touring career during this period. For Jagger, Richards, and Jones, the road was a point of stress and made it difficult for them to keep up with their long-term girlfriends. Others, like Charlie, found as much time as possible to spend with his girlfriend, Shirley. She was sort of a, a balancing point for Charlie on the road. Charlie loved his girlfriend so much that the couple even decided to secretly get married in a very private ceremony in a town hall, directly against the wishes of Andrew Lou Goldham, who wanted each of the Stones to remain single to maximize on their appeal to young female fans. Charlie and Shirley tied the knot in October of 1964 and kept the marriage a secret from even the rest of the band. He didn't want anyone, the press or management, to find out that he and Shirley were married. Pretty quickly, though, rumors started to spread that Watts got married. Initially, Charlie denied the accusation, saying to a newspaper in 1964, quote, I emphatically deny that I am married. These reports are completely untrue, unquote. Eventually, Stones fans tracked down the city hall where Charlie and Shirley were married and forced Charlie to backtrack, and finally forced him to admit that he was, in fact, married. Charlie said, quote, Yes, I am married. I kept it a secret from the boys. I thought that if the news leaked out, it would have had a bad effect on them. I intended on keeping it a secret as long as I could, unquote. Charlie and Shirley remained married until his death in the summer of 2021. And Charlie, though, for decades being in the middle of rock and roll excess and temptation, always remained faithful to Shirley. The same could not be said for the other Stones, Mick, Keith, Brian, and Bill, who all habitually cheated on their partners, especially during this period. Bill and Brian were the worst offenders. The two even developed a system for discreetly getting young fans into and out of their hotel rooms. 
Much of this behavior was pretty unbelievable and honestly pretty despicable during this period. However, it really was just the beginning of the excess that would become synonymous with the Rolling Stones. In the fall of 64, the Stones, while rising, were still somewhat in the shadow of the Beatles. It was during this tour, though, in the fall of 1964, that something about the Stones started to set them apart from the Fab Four. One evening, the band was playing a show in Blackpool, a city in the northwest of England. It was a holiday weekend, and the crowd was made up not mostly, but largely, of boys. The Stones' style of music and image led to an increase in their popularity among teenage boys. A lot of the boys were drunk, and there was a sort of anxious, angry atmosphere in the concert hall even between the band members. I mean, this whole tour, Brian was particularly paranoid about Mick, uh, and he was trying to outperform Mick, trying to perform as enthusiastically and as flamboyantly as possible to keep up with the lead singer of the band and keep himself as an important part of Stone's live shows. Brian and Mick kept getting close to the audience, and the drunken, angsty boys started to kind of scream at them, throw stuff, spit at them, try to taunt them. The whole thing was pretty distracting, and at one point, Keith went over to the group of boys and tried to defend his friends, when the boys decided to spit on Keith, too. Now, Keith has a very short temper, and he was furious when they spit on him, so he responded by stomping on one of the boys' hands, then kicked him directly in the face. In that moment, the entire audience pretty much turned against the Rolling Stones and unleashed an anger and violence the Stones didn't even think was possible. In just a few minutes, the Rolling Stones show turned into a riot, and an angry mob of teenagers started to tear the concert hall to shreds. The Stones, who were expected to play an encore, left, considering themselves pretty lucky to be alive, because the boys charged the stage and destroyed much of their equipment, along with the curtains, wires, lights, and pretty much everything they could destroy in the theater. Anything they could rip off the wall was fair game. Police and security were all of a sudden trying to tamp down a full-blown riot, for the first and definitely not the last time. After Blackpool, Rolling Stone shows routinely became an exercise in teenage male angst, and often ended up in straight-up violent riots. Pretty soon, Rolling Stone shows became outlets for young boys to fight each other, and more specifically, fight the police. There was so much rage, and for the band, their lives changed pretty dramatically once they no longer had to run away from girls who were in love with them, but dudes who wanted to be violent. Riot police became essential to the security of Rolling Stone shows, and lots of places banned the Stones from staying at their hotels or playing at their theaters because they didn't want their businesses destroyed by a violent, angry mob. Mick Jagger said in 1966, quote, With boys, it erupts. It's much more aggressive. They use a show to have a great fight with the police. They just beat the police up as a show of strength or a show of dissatisfaction with something, unquote. This had a clear impact on the band. First, they became more isolated. Brian said at the time, quote, You don't know you're marooned until you want to get something like toothpaste. Then you have to remind yourself that if you go outside, you'll get your clothes torn loose and lose a few handfuls of hair, unquote. The other big impact that riots at Rolling Stone shows had was it gave the national media a reason to make the Rolling Stones public enemy number one. They already hated the band for their long hair, their seductive music, and what they thought was behavior that corrupted the country. So when the riots started, they simply blamed the Stones for the violence. 
Essentially, the Stones became one of Britain's biggest problems, and parents agreed. The media's treatment of the Stones infuriated the band. They already hated the accusations that they had dirty hair and they wore clothes that were dirty and not washed, but to be blamed for violence felt too far. The Stones lost all respect for the media, who really never respected them, and they pretty much doubled down on their rebellious image. They stopped trying to keep it together. Andrew Luke Oldham pretty much encouraged this behavior. Be rude to journalists. Make faces at cameras. The Stones grew their hair longer. They'd swear and mess around in hotel lobbies just to see if they'd get kicked out. If they were going to be cast as rebels, they might as well play the part. Mick said something about the Stones image, quote, You see, you're thrust into the limelight, in a youth-oriented thing. It's not about growing up. It's about not growing up, in a way. Then it's about bad behavior. Then you're about bad behavior. So you start behaving badly, unquote. Keith said, quote, By then, we were sort of jerking it up. It was them against us, in the most obvious way, in a sort of, I don't know, perverted anarchy. It was the weirdest situation. If you did something wrong, even better. The Beatles got the white hat. What's left? The black hat, unquote. This is the image that would really stick to the Stones, you know, criminals, thugs. For the remainder of the 1960s and into the 1970s, the Stones not only played this part, but they became the symbol of youth misbehavior. And as drugs came into the picture, their image would even put the band at risk on more than one occasion. The 1960s turned the Stones into outlaws. Sometime between shows, the Rolling Stones found time to record their follow-up single to It's All Over Now. They recorded a slow blues number, Little Red Rooster, a cover of a Howlin' Wolf song written by Willie Dixon. Initially, Rooster was supposed to be an album track, but Charlie Watts actually suggested that it be released as a single, and the rest of the guys agreed. The song, which featured Brian Jones pretty much at his best, playing a beautiful slide guitar part, giving the Stones a unique sound and reminding everyone just how different the Rolling Stones were as a pop group. Andrew Luke Oldham was reluctant to issue Little Red Rooster as a single, but in November of 1964, it became the group's second number one single in the UK, which surprised even the band. Mick Jagger said, quote, The reason we recorded Little Red Rooster isn't because we want to bring blues to the masses. We've been going on and on about blues, so we thought it was time we stopped talking and did something about it. We liked that particular song, so we released it. We're not on the blues kick as far as recording goes. The next record will be entirely different, just as the others have been, unquote. Interestingly, Little Red Rooster remains to this day the only blues song to ever top the charts in the UK, a triumph for Brian Jones, who started the Stones to do just that, show the world R&B, it was also Brian Jones's favorite single. Bill Wyman said, quote, Little Red Rooster realized Brian's cherished ambition to put blues music at the top of the charts and meant his guilt of having sold out completely to pop music was diminished, unquote. In October of 1964, after a grueling tour of Britain and Europe, the Stones headed off to America to try once again to make it there. This time, their second tour would have them playing over 40 shows in the States, since their last trip, they'd experienced great success in the UK with two number one singles in five months. While this didn't fully translate to success in the US, their stock was rising overseas, and they were fairly confident that this trip to the United States might be a bit more successful than the last. 
While they still didn't have a number one, Time Is On My Side was a top 10 hit in the US, and this time, the Stones had landed a gig on the Holy Ed Sullivan Show, which was their most high-profile gig yet by far. The Ed Sullivan Show appearance kicked off their tour, and after nervously waiting in the Ed Sullivan Show dressing room all day, the band took the stage and played Chuck Berry's Around and Round, followed by Time Is On My Side. The audience was crazy, and the Stones were very well received. Ed Sullivan himself said that he had never had an audience that enthusiastic, even for the Beatles. Sullivan was very nice and grateful to the band, and told them that they had done a great job and they were welcome back any time. The boys were thrilled. They thought they played a very successful Ed Sullivan show, until the reviews started pouring in, describing the band as sloppy, dirty, and bad for the youth of America. The criticism then turned to Ed Sullivan, who gave them some sort of platform, and Sullivan relented and publicly condemned the Rolling Stones, saying, quote, It took me 17 years to build up this show, and I'm not going to have it destroyed in a matter of weeks. I was shocked when I saw the Rolling Stones. I promise you they'll never be back on this show, unquote. This was the exact opposite impression that Ed Sullivan gave to the band, and the opposite of what he said about the Beatles, who he praised for being so polite. The Stones were crushed. They felt once again betrayed by America and that the whole world was against them. Andrew Lou Goldham wasn't worried. He thought that the outrage around the Stones was only going to help them in the States, that all news is good news, and he was right. There was so much energy around the Stones this tour, and parents condemning them really only made them more interesting to kids. As for Ed Sullivan, he would soften pretty quickly, and the Stones would go on to appear on the Ed Sullivan show a bunch of times in the following years. The Stones embarked on their U.S. tour, and they were met with sold-out shows and ecstatic audiences, much like they were used to in Britain. In Southern California, they played their biggest show to date, uh, and they also stopped at RCA Studios to record a few songs, some more covers, which they'd include on their follow-up album, and a Jagger Richards original Heart of Stone, which was released as a single in the United States as a follow-up to Time Is On My Side. Heart of Stone found itself in the top 20. When in New York, the band went to a James Brown concert, which fascinated Mick and pretty much completely changed his performing style. Till that point, Mick was cool, calm, the definite leader on stage, but in more of a laid-back, reserved way. He had a lot of Little Richard in him, so he wasn't boring to watch. He was still very energetic, but seeing James Brown inspired Mick to be more daring and to do a lot more dancing. Jagger said of seeing James Brown for the first time, quote, He did an hour and a half act, nonstop, and some fantastic footwork. I asked a choreographer later if it could be learned, but he said he moves so fast it's almost impossible to see what he does. I do a bit of James Brown now, but it's a very watered-down version, unquote. Brian, who toured America with his signature Vox teardrop guitar, was enjoying life on the road very much. He loved the girls and was totally intoxicated by the fame, the screaming crowds, and the buzz around him and his band. Brian wasn't yet a drug addict. Drugs hadn't really come into the picture yet for the Stones, but he was becoming a heavy drinker. Some nights he'd put back a bottle of whiskey. Brian was also taking a whole bunch of amphetamines, or uppers as they called them, which were taken a bit by Mick and Keith, but Brian and their manager, Andrew Luke Oldham, pretty much abused them. They didn't really see them as drugs or a problem because amphetamines were legal. 
However, a lot of the time, Brian and Andrew were pretty strung out on uppers. In mid-November, Brian Jones hit a wall. With fever symptoms and signs of exhaustion, Brian was checked into a hospital after the show in Pittsburgh, and he missed the rest of the U.S. tour. Crowds were disappointed, and so were Keith and Bill, who had to work extra hard to fill in for Brian. When he got back to Britain at the end of 1964, Brian was quick to put the lid on the rumors that he was leaving the group, and he said to the press, quote, I'm not on my last legs, and I'm not leaving the Stones. I felt ill during our American tour, that's why I have to take things easy for a while. The thought of leaving the Stones has never crossed my mind, unquote. The rest of the band just couldn't relate to Brian's health problems. They were healthy and figured Brian was just being lazy or selfish. Plus, they didn't understand why he would want to miss a show. Shows to the Rolling Stones were sacred. Brian's attendance was never going to get better, though, and it would only cause him to drift further away from the rest of the band. The Rolling Stones got back to Britain in December of 1964 and finished out the year doing some more gigs and recording. January of 1965, their album was released in the UK, which featured three Jagger Richards originals, including What a Shame, Grown Up Wrong, and Off the Hook, along with a bunch of other R&B covers. The album is surprisingly subtle, but sold extremely well and reached the number one position, where it stayed for some time. In January of 1965, the Stones were immediately back on the road, this time for a tour of Australia, New Zealand, and parts of Asia. On their way over, they stopped in Los Angeles, where they recorded a few songs, including their latest single, The Last Time. The Last Time was a Jagger Richards composition, featuring a prominent guitar riff written by Keith and played by Brian, and clever lyrics written by Mick Jagger. Keith said of The Last Time, quote, when we recorded the last time in January of 1965, we'd come back off the road and everyone was exhausted. It was the period where everything, songwriting, recording, performing, stepped into a new league, unquote. Keith was right. They didn't really know it at the time, but the last time was the beginning of Mick and Keith's prolific pop songwriting period. The song is quintessential Jagger Richards, the riff, the snarkiness, the big chorus, and released in February of 1965, it became the first Jagger Richards songs to top the charts in the UK, and it definitely wouldn't be the last. Now, after the success of The Last Time and the release of their second album, the band's schedule got harder. They toured Australia, New Zealand, Britain, Europe, Canada, and America all in the first six months of 1965. While all of this was happening, Brian's behavior was continuing to be a problem for the band, though this was really just the beginning. Brian, who had just had his fourth illegitimate child with his girlfriend Linda Lawrence, got another girl pregnant, and she was asking for compensation from Brian and the band. Brian refused and began to ignore the girl, making the problem worse. Andrew Lug Oldham and Mick Jagger who saw that this could be a huge publicity headache, were left to clean up Brian's mess. Oldham, Jagger, and the girl came to an agreement. They gave her a sum of money to stop pursuing Brian. All of this was done without Brian's knowledge, completely behind his back. He had no idea. I mean, in his mind, the drama of his fifth illegitimate son simply went away. But the rest of the band wasn't really satisf satisfied with Brian's behavior. They felt that Brian was risking the band's future. Already, the Stones were hated enough. 
They didn't need any of these fatherhood claims to bring them more bad press. Brian, who had for some time been the fearless leader of the band, started to be treated more as the Stone's punching bag, a role that was previously occupied mainly by Bill Wyman. Keith said about the way he and Mick started to treat Brian, quote, It was wicked, schoolboy sort of stuff. Sitting at the back of the bus, we would just let him have it, pretending he wasn't there. Where's Brian? Shit, did you see what he was wearing yesterday? It was the pressure of work, and the other side of it was that you hoped that some kind of shock treatment would snap him out of it, unquote. The only thing it did do was make Brian more paranoid, especially about Mick and Andrew Luke Oldham. He thought that there was this conspiracy to throw him out of the band, and he was convinced that when he wasn't around, the rest of the guys were sitting around plotting about how to get rid of him. Brian got so paranoid, one night in Canada, he even left the band and skipped a bunch of shows, saying that he'd quit. He returned a few days later, and the band was pretty much indifferent about the whole incident. They thought that Brian was just trying to get attention, that he was throwing some tantrum. They didn't even take him seriously. Now, the truth is, there sort of was a whispering campaign about Brian at the time, which may not have been totally fair, but at the same time, Brian didn't do anything to moderate his behavior. In fact, it only got worse, and it only put the band in jeopardy more often. I mean, he screwed the band over more times than they cared to count. When the band was on tour in Florida in May of 1965, Brian crossed a real line. Mick, Keith, and Bill were all hanging out by the hotel pool, drinking and relaxing between shows, just having a good time, when a young girl came down looking shocked and bruised. She was crying and said that Brian had beat her up in his hotel room. Everybody was totally disgusted with Brian. Not only could this destroy the band, but they thought it was just abhorrent behavior. I mean, why on earth would Brian beat up a young girl? The Stones' road manager, Mike Dorsey, went up and beat the crap out of Brian, cracking two of his ribs. Dorsey described his punishment of Brian, saying, quote, I held him by the collar and belt out the hotel window and said, If you ever do that again, I'll drop you, unquote. This was one of those moments that caused the band to lose a lot of respect for Brian. He sort of became the butt of the joke to the rest of the guys, and their treatment of him only got worse. But the band's treatment of him was far less destructive to Brian's role in the Stones than the songs that they were writing. I mean, Brian's role was diminishing a lot because Keith and Mick were getting better and better at writing pop songs. Brian was quickly becoming just a rhythm guitarist in the band. It was on that same trip to Florida that arguably one of the most important Rolling Stones songs ever written was born. Keith Richards was a compulsive songwriter. He was always trying to remember little bits and pieces, riffs, melodies, lyric ideas. He started walking around with a tape recorder so that he could remember everything that he was thinking and writing. One night on tour in Florida, Keith woke up in the middle of the night having dreamed up a song idea. Half asleep, he hurriedly pressed record on his tape recorder and recorded what he had. Keith tells the story best, saying, quote, I wrote Satisfaction in my sleep. I had no idea I'd written it. Thank God for the little Phillips cassette players. The miracle being that I looked at the cassette player that morning, and I knew I'd put a brand new tape in the previous night, and I saw that it was at its end. Then I pushed rewind, and there was satisfaction. It was just a rough idea, and 40 minutes of me snoring. <laughs> 
unquote. The Stones tried to record Satisfaction a couple times. Keith wrote it on acoustic, so the first take of the song created a totally different acoustic, bluesy, slower vibe. It was bluesy and it was cool, but it wasn't anything special, maybe a B-side. They tried to record it again in Los Angeles a few days later, and this time something told Keith that the riff needed something. Now, Keith was picturing the guitar riff as a horn part, and that horn part needed to be a little more meatier and a little more pronounced. So to create a more robust sound, Keith used a fuzz pedal from Gibson to get that kind of classic distorted, fuzzed out, crispy, crunchy sound that we hear on the final version of Satisfaction. Now, this was the ingredient that the tune needed to stand out. And before they knew it, the song had taken on a life of its own. Keith Richards' fuzzed-out tone added so much energy and anger to the song. And Jagger wrote these angry lyrics about consumerism, fame, and dissatisfaction that perfectly captured the mood of Rolling Stones fans and a lot of young people in 1965. This was before the counterculture started. It was just germinating, and people like the Stones were lighting the flame. Though Keith was skeptical, the rest of the band agreed to release it as their next single. And just three weeks later, I Can't Get No Satisfaction was released. The song was a smash and topped the charts in both Britain and the United States. Finally, in June of 1965, the Stones conquered the United States, and the song couldn't have been more Jagger Richards. Mick Jagger said of Satisfaction, quote, It was the song that really made the Rolling Stones, changed us from just another band into a huge monster band. It has a very catchy title. It has a very catchy guitar riff. It has a great guitar sound, which was original at that time. And it captures a spirit of the times, which is very important in those kinds of songs, which was alienation, unquote. Now, Jagger was right. Everything about I Can't Get No Satisfaction was innovative. I mean, the lyrics were rebellious and, and sort of capturing this mood that was really very special and unique to the times. And the sound that Keith Richard made while it was around and people were starting to use distortion pedals, I mean, this sounded very, very advanced and metal and new at the time. It's hard to believe it now. You know, it just sounds like a little bit of distortion, but at the time it was like a thunderstorm. I mean, there was so much energy, so much uh, excitement in that riff. Jagger was right. With I Can't Get No Satisfaction, the Rolling Stones completely changed the game in pop music. For the first time, the Beatles had real competition. Jagger and Richards were officially hitting their strides as composers. There was just no question that more Jagger Richards magic was going to occur. Most importantly, though, the Stones, after I Can't Get No Satisfaction, were no longer just a pop group or some novelty British invasion band. The Stones became a pop cultural institution, and they would stay that way for decades. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow at Rock Band's podcast on Instagram. 
and share rock bands with all of your rock and roll loving friends so I can keep this going. Okay, so excited for next week. So don't forget to subscribe and listen to the Rolling Stones. Thanks so much. Thank you.